Jesus. We bless you, Father. Thank you for raising us up in heavenly realms. Think about that, saints, as you bless them. Somebody say, thank you, Father, for raising me up. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated in this realm as you are spiritually seated in the heavenly realms. Amen. How many believe you're seated in heavenly realms as you're seated here even right now? Amen. We are in two places at the same time. You know, they have learned with particle physics that sometimes it's a wave and sometimes it's a, uh, it's a function of light. And they thought that that was uh, counterdicting that we would, uh, you know, the law of contradiction means A can't be B, you know, if A and B are two separate things. But they began to realize that what makes those particles change is the observer, that the observer is the one that's changing it. This is something that you may not agree with. That's okay. Think, t- think about it and look at particle physics and how it changes from a wave to a function of a light. And one of the things that some Christians have looked at when we've seen this is could God be able to do this by observing us, that God observes us. And as God observes us, we are seen in his presence and at the same time in this realm. And so we are the observation of God. We exist. We be because he be. Did I just lose half of you guys? Come on. Somebody say, I'm here and I'm seated in heavenly realms. Now, whether or not you want to see something like that in particle physics from the wave to the light, if, if that's up to you. But I believe God observes us. God observes us. How many know God is seeing you right now? He is the observer, and as God observes us, we become a part of God's reality. If God would not be, I would not be. How many know because he be, I be? Amen. Look at your neighbor and say, who be you? (laughs) Who be you? I'm a Christian. Amen. But in, in my body, I'm a physical man. I'm a physical being. How many of you have a physical body? But how many of you believe you have an inner body, an inner person, an inner man? How many believe your spiritual soul is on the inside of this body? And so because he be, we be. And God not only observes us in a physical realm, he not only observes us here, but he also observes us in his presence. And so is it, uh, just turn there so they can see what I'm talking about, please, Ephesians 2, a little bit off script. It's not like as if I didn't have enough things to talk about when it comes to John. I think we're going to go to 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 passages, including the one we'll be reading. But I wanted to take a detour. I want you to understand this. We're seated in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and just start in verse 1 for them, brother. It says that when you were dead in your transgressions and sins and the way you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world, of the rule of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Everybody say, that's the bad news. Now, notice how we were in two realms in that time right there. We were in the realm of the flesh and under the spirit of the power of the air. Does everybody see that? We were in those two realms. I said, does everybody see that? Look at it again. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in the way you used to live. Did you live in the power of the air? Were you up there floating around or going from one you know, realm to another with the devil? No. You used to live in the flesh on this earth, and as you were in the flesh on this earth, what was also happening? The spirit who is at now at work and those who are disobedient, so they don't have the Holy Spirit, those who are disobedient. They have that spirit, and you used to have that spirit, and you were in that realm. Somebody say, I was in a bad place. 
Amen. But now look, somebody say but. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been what? Saved. And in verse 6, and God has raised us with Christ and seated us with him. Where? In the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, and this might sound like what you were just singing. That's why we got to be careful what we sing from K-Love. Come on. If you're always singing about a tear in your beard being beautifully broken, sing some of this. Because in the coming ages, all that remains is his glorious grace. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Come on, somebody say grace up in your face. Amen. So you have a physical realm while being a sinner that you sinned in or the people who are sinning now, and then you are in a spiritual realm under the power of the devil or those people who are still there under the power of the devil. But now you are seated here in the earthly realm as a Christian because you've been saved and your body doesn't do what it used to do. It's a temple of the Lord, right? And at the same time, you're in a spiritual realm seated with God in heavenly places. What a beautiful song. Let's turn to John chapter 1. I just wanted you to see that. And then if you ever learn or um, Google about the the, the function of particle physics, you can just see uh, how Christians are trying to understand understand the physical realm with the spiritual realm and seeing if there's similarities there. And I just think that God is our observer. God is the reason why we can be in what would seem like two places at one time. Now, looking at John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to talk to you today about grace and truth. Somebody say grace, grace and truth. He was full of grace and what? Amen. Caris in the Greek, grace, overflowing mercy, kindness, undeserved forgiveness, favor. All of these words can describe grace. Caris in the Greek, and then uh, truth, aletheia, that which corresponds to reality, that which is true, not based on subjective feelings, but objectively true. Subjectivism is what you think, I think, and what we all think, and most of us have opinions, and they're like armpits, two of them, and they what? They stink. Truth is not based on opinions or feelings. Aletheia corresponds to that which is reality. And what is the greatest reality? What is the greatest truth? Jesus says later on in the book of John, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Life is not just something you experience. Life is a person. Truth is not just something you experience. Truth is a person. All that which is true corresponds to God, corresponds to the Son. That's beautiful when you think about it. He's also the way. Now look at verse 15. John testified, talking about John the Baptist concerning him he cried out this is the one I spoke about when I said he who comes after me is greater than me this one that comes after me is is the one I spoke about he comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me somebody say he was before John the Baptist come on think about this when did you ever hear a prophet prophesy about another prophet and say this prophet so much more greater than me he comes before me Now, you never hear anything like that. John the Baptist, was in in the physical birth, was John the Baptist older or younger than Jesus in the physical birth? John the Baptist was older, right? Because when Mary came, John the Baptist was about ready to be born, and she had just conceived by the Holy Spirit, and then John the Baptist is, is, is flipping and turning, getting full of the Holy Ghost in there, amen, in the womb. And so he says, he is that has, he who comes after me in the sense of his incarnation has surpassed me because he was what? 
He was what? What does John the Baptist say he was? Before me. Somebody say before me. Highlight it for him. Help me preach today. John the Baptist says, he who comes after me, talking about the incarnation, has surpassed me because he comes what? Before me. John the Baptist teaching us about the supremacy of Christ. Now notice this, verse 16. Out of his fullness. Somebody say fullness. Thank you. We have all received grace in place of grace already given. Was there grace in the Old Testament? Yes, there was grace in the Old Testament. Where did that come from? According to John the Baptist. According to John the Baptist, he said he came before me. And so where did that, come, where did that grace of the Old Testament come from? It came from Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Son of God in the Old Testament meeting with the saints. Let's just show them because I got, I got some blank stares. Go back to your scriptures. Go to uh, Genesis 18. This will be one of your favorite passages if you attend our church because you'll say, man, pastor has showed me Jesus many times in the Old Testament. Another one that we always love to go to is Exodus 33, but I'll show you here because Abraham's going to be very important to this discussion. When we hear that out of the fullness of Jesus, grace has come in place of grace already received, what is he talking about? He's talking about all throughout the Old Testament, we have seen the grace of God. John the Baptist knew this because he had come before Jesus. John the Revelator, John the Gospel writer, is reiterating what John the Baptist had said. He is before me. The Lord, look at chapter 18, verse 1 in Genesis. The Lord appeared to whom? Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. So Abraham looks up and he sees these men walking. So the Lord appeared to him. Now just hold your place there and go back over to our notes, please, in John. And then now go on to verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself who? God who is himself who? God is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So when grace was given to Abraham, who did that come from? That came from the pre-incarnate Jesus. Am I playing tricks with you guys? Come on, man. This is important stuff right here, isn't it? Going back up to verse 14. Let's, let's tie it together. Let's take our time today. The Word became flesh. That is the Son of God coming into the flesh. We will know him as Jesus. So from this point on, it's okay to refer to the Word or the Son as Jesus. Even the author of Hebrews looks back anachronistically and says Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He understands Jesus is the earthly name given to the Son in the flesh. But like I said, it's okay theologically to refer to the Son or the Word in his preexistence as Jesus because we know he's the same. But that moment of incarnation is where he reveals himself to to us in such a way that he can be touched, seen, and heard consistently. And why does he do that? So that he can be crucified, buried, raised again. Somebody say, that's my Jesus. So the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. John, the revelator speaking here, says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who has come from the father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Thank you. Now, John the Baptist, I know there's two Johns. It can be confusing. We're reading the gospel of John, and then John the Baptist now testifies concerning him. He cried out, saying, this is the prophet John speaking, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me in the incarnation, because John knew he was older than him physically, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
Now, John the Revelator, taking John the Baptist's teaching that he was before him, says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. So starting with Adam and Eve, who's giving them grace? Jesus. Then moving on to Noah, who's giving him grace? Jesus. Then moving on to Abraham, who's giving them grace? Jesus. At the coming of the law, who's giving the Israelites grace? Jesus. You can see this pattern. Grace is giving in place of grace. Now look at here, verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace. Somebody say his fullness. Now go to Colossians chapter 2. This is important to understand. Out of his fullness, we have received grace. The fullness in the, when you would see the, the, the body of Jesus Christ, you would see the fullness of God in bodily form. Somebody say the fullness. Amen. Let's go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. General Electric Power Company. There it is. G-E-P-C. That's how I remember it. Now look at uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ all the what? Okay, some of you aren't there because the karaoke screen's not there. Work your word with us. Look at verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians. For in Christ all the all the fullness of the deity or the God nature lives in bodily form. Now watch this. And in Christ you have been brought to what? Woo, come on somebody. Isn't that beautiful right there? You should keep up with us on Facebook and on my personal page because I had to deal with some fools that didn't think they had the fullness of Christ and that Christians could be demon-possessed. You can only be filled with one thing at a time, baby. And according to the Bible, Christians are filled with the fullness of Christ. So if you have a demon, let me just help you out right here. That's the first check mark to let you know you don't have Christ. You are either a false convert and got to get this thing right, or you have backslid like Saul in the Bible and like others and have received that backsliding spirit. Are you listening? But those in Christ, somebody say, I'm in Christ. There ain't no room for a devil. <laughs> say it, man. Say, there ain't no room for a devil because I got the fullness of Christ. In Christ was the fullness of deity, and now in Christ you have the fullness of him. Isn't that beautiful? I love teaching new Christians this because instead of having them spit in bags, confessing silly spirits, and playing make-believe with like a kundalini spirit, I teach them who they are in Christ. And that's why this church has been built over the years with teaching the identity of Christ and watching people get free from all their sin, all their bondage, because as Christ is, so are they. And instead of being afraid of devils, the devils are afraid of them. Because when you know who you are in Christ, the devil runs in Jesus' name. Amen? And then instead of you being all wishy-washy, you'll be a terror to his kingdom, plundering hell, populating heaven. Amen. Now go back to John, please, because we see that out of his fullness, out of his very nature comes this grace and truth. This is the nature of our God. God is grace and truth. 
Now look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you notice the dichotomy there? He's trying to get these people to understand. If you're only looking at the law, you're only going to look at where you fail and where you can't live up to the standard. And if you keep claiming to be in Moses and you're trying to do what Moses did, you'll realize that you'll never be perfect, you'll never be whole, you'll never be brought to fullness. But you need to have what Jesus has, and that's grace and truth. And the secret of the story is, is that there was actually grace and truth in the law. That's why Psalm 119 is praising the law. David wrote a whole song about the law through the Hebrew alphabet. But you see, they forgot the blessing in the law, and they only saw the law itself and boasted in men like Moses. Now look at verse 18 in conclusion to what we have just heard. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God, and in his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Somebody say grace and truth. Thank you. So what I would like to do now is walk you through the book of John to help you see God in the flesh, Jesus in the flesh, showing us grace and truth. Are you all ready for it? Amen. Let's go to the next chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 and onward. Now, we will be reading these uh, passages. We will be reading them word for word in our series. By God's grace, thank you for being here first service. We're going through the book of John. So don't worry. We will spend much more time and depth in these passages. We are now, if you're just keeping track, word for word at verse 18 that we just completed. We will come to each one of these and introduce different sermons according to these topics that come up. But because I I want you to see in John's first chapter the introduction, the beginning of the story. I want you to see how his introduction plays throughout the story. Now, Jesus came full of grace and truth. Somebody say grace. Amen. Let's see some grace. Y'all ready for some grace? Let's see it right here. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. How many like weddings? People like weddings? People get married around here all the time. Amen. Congratulations to all those getting married this year. Got a lot of COVID babies coming out as well. Praise God for COVID babies. Love to be fruitful and multiply here. Uh, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Everybody go, aw. No more, no more wine. That's a sad moment for a wedding. Now, right here, my Pentecostal brethren, who I love and respect, want to say, well, that just means the grape juice ran out. Oh, no, brother, that's not what it means. That's not what it means. I know my Pentecostal brethren want to say that's where the grape juice ran out. That's not what it means. As you trace this word from the Hebrew to the Greek, this kind of wine could get you drunk. Now they bring up a good point and say, well, was this wine as hard as our whiskey and the things that uh, people did in the 1800s as they began to do that kind of moonshine thing and they began to do different processes with the fermentation to increase the level of alcohol. No, it wasn't as intense of that, uh, but it was the kind of wine that could get you drunk. It was more a drink as a regular drink, something like a European style would be more uh, akin to this. Even Europeans and, uh, and the Mediterraneans have a lot in common with the Middle East, okay, eating with their hands, the pita, you know, the very similar types of diet and the olive oil and so forth. So this was, in fact, alcoholic wine. Now, Jesus didn't want anybody to get drunk, but there's about ready to be some grace. Everybody say grace. So it starts with his mom. And she says, uh, Jesus, they have no more wine. He says, woman, why do you involve me in this? They can go over here to Jewel. They can go get themselves some Mer Merlot. They can take care of this themselves. Uh, my hour has not yet come. 
but his mother. And you just got to see the humor here between a son and a mother. Now, we know that Mary is not the actual mother of Jesus in the sense that God has a mother and there is a mother God, which, by the way, there is a mother God cult, and that is a whole nother deception. Uh, she is his mother by giving Jesus the physical body, but he has come from heaven. In other words, Jesus took on the earth suit that Mary provided. And so I just want to say this real quick with Mary. We want to walk um, in between the two ditches. One ditch is to disrespect Mary and act as if she is not the Theotokos, which is the bearer of God in Greek. She does bear the Son of God. She is important and she should be honored. But at the same time, we don't want to start praying to the mother of Guadalupe, okay? We don't want to start praying to her and giving her all kinds of things that we should only give God. So I always tell people, if you want to honor Mary, pray like how Mary prayed. Mary prayed to Jesus. If you want to be like Mary, if you really want to honor Mary, do what Mary did. Talk to Jesus. Amen. But here you see a little bit of the humor. At other times, she gets rebuked, but here she gets the mother favor. She doesn't really pay attention to his hour not coming. She just said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, and come on over here. We're going to do something here. Now, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. So they got big jars here full of water that they would wash themselves in, each holding around 20 to 30 gallons. Somebody say, that's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. Somebody say, that's a lot of grace coming because grace also means gift, right? So, so here they are. I mean, look at this right here. There are six jars with 20 gallons. That's 120 gallons. Are you all listening to this? This is your Bible. Somebody say, it's my Bible. Now, some legalistic people, they want to pretend this is not their Bible. But this is your Bible too, my frozen chosen friends. Now Jesus is going to get with it and be honorable to his mother. He's going to be influenced by her in some way. But we know the father is leading him because he only does what pleases the father. So Jesus is a real person in real relationships, and that's how we're supposed to see this. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into grape juice, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new. So he called the bridegroom and said, everyone brings out the choice grape juice first, and then the cheaper grape juice after the guests have well drunk grape juice, but you have saved the best grape juice till now. Does grape juice fit into this context? Have you ever heard people talking about the different qualities of grape juice? Oh, man, this is a uh, 2012 grape juice the children are talking around at their lunch table, you know, out of their box. Oh, oh man, no, man, mine is a 1995 grape juice from Napa Valley. No, who talks about quality of wine? I mean, who talks about quality of drink? Those who drink wine, right? Who, who talks about people who drink quality of wine talk about, uh, people drink this, they talk about the different tastes of it, the different flavors and so forth. The context tells you it was wine because then he says, when everybody is well drunk, that's when they bring out the cheap stuff. Okay, that's when they bring out the cheap stuff. Now, sometimes people like to say here, oh, well, does that mean Jesus wants everybody to get drunk? No, this is not appropriate in the Jewish culture. As you study the Jewish culture, drunkenness was a blight upon any party. Just like in our day, when people take drinking to being drunk, how many know that turns the party upside down? 
And there are parties that are meant just to get drunk, but how many know good people don't go to those kind of parties? So whenever a good kind of party or wedding or a gathering turns into somebody getting drunk, that's not a fun party anymore. That one person can ruin it all. So that was looked at as a blight in that culture was to be drunk at a wedding. That's not what you would want to do. And by the way, those weddings would go on for days. And yet we see here that Jesus is okay that after they've drank for a few days and eating and digesting and not being drunk, that in those times they would bring out the cheaper stuff and say, okay, the wedding's winding down. Let's bring out the cheap stuff. But the, the wine taster or the head uh, master of the ceremony says, this is the best stuff. Somebody say, God saved the best for last. Now, right there, that's grace. That's what I call grace, amen? Somebody says, Jesus never drank, and all of a sudden you look at the party. Jesus got the guy on the wine. He's bringing it over here. Hey, guys, I don't know if you know if I made some of this, but y'all will try some of this. We don't see that, Jesus, if you're just legalistic. If you're all into the truth of sin and drunkenness and all of that, you don't see Jesus chilling at a wedding, allowing his mom to influence him, being led by the Father, obviously, to do something great. People like myself, who were brought up in very strict Pentecostalism, had to change that into grape juice, had to change this into a different scenario that it really wasn't. Now I can see it and understand that was God bringing grace to a wedding and allowing them to dance and to celebrate and to have fun within the realms of what is acceptable. They were not getting drunk. Can I hear an amen to that? But some may say there's some truth coming. <laughs> amen. Now go to chapter 2, verse 13. See, he came full of grace and what? truth. Now, here's another story about Jesus in the same chapter of John. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and conference tickets, and books, and, uh, oh, that doesn't say that there, does it? By the way, all of our books are free if you don't want to pitch in and help out what we're doing. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip. He made a happy stick. He made a tickle, a tickle yarn thing to tickle you with. Is that what he did? <laughs> Trying to think of something you would tickle somebody with, you know? Is that what he, no, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Somebody say truth. You see, our Jesus is both, isn't he? Our Jesus is not just the life of the party. Oh, bring Jesus to the party. It's going to be fun at the party. Bring Jesus in. Well, you don't know what Jesus is going to show up that day. It might be the Jesus that does make the wine, or it might be the Jesus that makes the cords. Depending on how people are acting and behaving is how Jesus is going to be. Now, we know there's only one Jesus. And the way I like to look at it as this is if we have a coin. There's only one coin, but there's two sides to a coin. How many have seen those before? A coin, two sides. We have them in our, in our currency. It's not that there's two different Jesuses. It's really how Jesus is going to be. And really, we're supposed to be this same way. There are times when we are going to be outwardly gracious in the sense that we are there to be the life of the party, to bring joy, to bring happiness, to celebrate. And then there's going to be times that we're going to bring truth, and we're going to do some whipping and some cleansing and some rebuking. 
As a matter of fact, this is the experience of life. This is how it will be in your life, not just in church, not just in religious affairs, but it will be this way on your job. There are some days, let's say you're a boss, you're going to come in and you're going to say how great everybody's doing. You're going to give them some donuts. You're going to you know, talk about promotions and so forth and bonuses and raises. And then there's going to be other days where you're going to have to say, Barbara, meet me in my office. And then you're going to let somebody go. How many know that happens? And that's a part of life. Sometimes in marriage, there's, you know, it's not just all about making babies. Can I hear an amen from some married folks? Sometimes you're going to have to clear some stuff out the marriage. You're going to have to be strong in certain ways. Now, of course, we're not going to physically whip or abuse anybody. But it was his father's house because sometimes people think that Jesus is doing something that he doesn't have authority to do. No, it's his father's house. He can do that in his father's house. And so we see grace and truth. Let me say grace and truth. Amen. Let's go to John chapter 3. I've talked about it before. We'll see John chapter 3 in his discussion with Nicodemus the very, in the very same sentences, the very same verses, grace and truth. Have you seen them before? Look at John 3.16. He's speaking to Nicodemus, talking to him about being born again. He now says to him, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal what? Eternal life. Amen? What's that word that starts with the P that's in the middle of that, though? Perish. It's right there. Grace and what? Truth. Grace and truth. You can choose to perish or you can have eternal life. Even in what we would say is our most loving scripture to give people as Christians, we put it on our shirts, has both grace and truth. Now let me say this as well, so as if we think there are only two sides. You know, the one side of a coin never touches the other side. Isn't that kind of interesting? They never touch each other. But I don't really want us to see grace that way. Grace actually touches and intermingles with truth like a cord being wrapped a two-string um, two cord, and truth affects grace. When you are a gracious person, you will always give truth and grace. And when you are a truth-focused person, you will always be influenced by grace. So whether you're giving grace with truth or truth with grace, they are actually intermingled. How many see it like that? And so what you see here in a verse that grace and truth in their fullness are actually not two competing ideas, though we can see them as sides, but they're two inter mingling concepts that Jesus is. Now go with me to John chapter 4. How many can say grace and truth again? Come on, don't get tired. Help me out. Somebody say grace and truth. Amen. Here's another situation where it flows right together. There's a woman. She's at the well. She's a Samaritan. Jesus chooses to go there and hang out with her. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. How many know there's always been problems with cultures and races in the past, in the present, and probably will be in the future, but we believe there's one race, the human race, one people of one blood, and then now in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Can I hear an Amen. So we know the answer. We don't need to wait for the world to tell us. We'll teach the world how to break down all barriers of, of, barriers of culturalism, you know, ideologies that come from those different cultures. We all will be one in Christ and teach them how to follow our lead. Amen? 
No ethnocentrism here. Now Jesus answered her and said, "Answered her and said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if you knew who I was, you would not just be sitting here being chill. You would be asking me for living water. Verse 11, she says, sir, uh, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Notice he had said living water. She just went right past that. She wasn't paying attention. And she says, the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it itself, as did also his sons and his livestock? She missed the concept of what he meant by living water. So he's going to go deeper now with her. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water, or in other words, this kind kind of water will be thirsty again. But everyone who drinks the water or the kind of water I will give them will never thirst. How many in Christ today have had their thirst quenched? Amen? You're not thirsting after the world. You're not going to the club to find what you can't get in church. How many know you are no longer thirsty? You are full in Christ. And as a matter of fact, you got rivers of living water flowing out of you to give to others. Amen? Look at your neighbor and say, don't be thirsty. Let Jesus satisfy you. Some of y'all thirsty for relationships, thirsty for different things. Let Christ satisfy your thirst. Amen. He's the true thirst quencher. Jesus is the true thirst quencher. And he said, indeed, and here's where it gets even better, indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15 The woman checks in. She's got it now. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. She got half of it right. Now the other half is, and keep coming here to draw water. It's the same way they messed up eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We'll be getting to that in just a moment. We're not eating your flesh, Jesus. We're not going to be cannibals. He says, these words I speak are spirit and in truth. They are are spiritual, right? So she's missing it. She's like, okay, well, if I can have water in me all the time and be flowing out water, well, then just give it to me so I don't have to come here. She doesn't get the spiritual concept, but I love this. Everybody say grace and truth. All of that was gracious, wasn't it, in that sense? And it still was full of truth. None of it was a lie. You get my point. They're intermingled. But if we just want to see, like, the overarching uh, concept here, it was gracious. I'm going to give you water. I'm going to give you all the water that you could ever need, water that's going to turn into wells of living water within you. You're going to be flowing out into the world. And she's like, okay, I want that water. And then now here comes the truth. Go call your husband and come back then. So those of you who know the story already, now you know the truth bomb just went off right there. She's like, what? I have no husband, she replied. She, you know, she's caught now, but she's just going to play it off. And then Jesus says, yeah, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now shacking up with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Somebody say, that's truth. I love that about Jesus. I mean, I know we're having fun, and it's meant to be joyful as we learn about the things of God, but the serious point is there. He's offering her all of these wonderful things, just like he was offering that to John the, I mean, uh, Nicodemus. He's offering all of these wonderful things, but he's telling them at the same time, you're going to perish unless you do this, and if you don't repent, you don't get this life, you don't get this well. You've got to be honest with who you are. 
So often, and and listen to me, I do not believe everybody who preaches a lukewarm or a superficial, shallow gospel is what would be considered a false teacher in the sense that they're damnable. So let me just be uh, clear on my personal stance. I don't think Joel Osteen is going to hell. I pray for him. I think he's going to heaven, but I think he gives only the first part of this story. And I think by doing that, I think he's doing a great disservice. And there are others that are like him. And so I know that disappoints some of you. You're like, oh, man, I want you to tell me he's going to hell, Pastor. You see, I can't do that because he actually believes in the true gospel. We can't go beyond what people's doctrine is to assume something else. He actually believes Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, atones for sins by faith in Christ, by grace, you know, uh, because of the grace of God, by faith we participate in salvation. I mean, that's the gospel. How many believe that's the gospel? Now, if someone doesn't want to tell you how that applies to your life, if someone doesn't want to get up in your business and make it more applicable, that's going between them and God. Uh, and, and I believe we should judge that message and say that is a shallow message, as I have done and I'm doing with you now. But with all due respect, I think we go too far when we say, well, that person himself or herself is going to hell because now we're saying that they're being saved by works. And that's not true. You can go to heaven believing a bunch of dumb things. Are you listening to me? You can be a Christian and believe a bunch of wrong things. How many know there are people going to heaven that still don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Okay, so when they preach the gospel, they're not casting out devils, speaking in new tongues. They're not, you know, but how many know they're still going to heaven? Come on, even though we tease Caleb, how many know those folks, most of them, are going to heaven? Amen. We tease them. They're going to heaven, okay? John MacArthur is going to heaven, all right? So these people, you know, have differences with us about the experiences of God, but what they're not doing is they're not going the full way. And they're giving a false impression to others. And truly, as I believe, like with Ezekiel, the blood will be on their hands because they have not warned anybody. You see, John uh, is telling us about Jesus here. And Jesus did not just say, hey, does everybody want something to drink? A woman, if you want something to drink, come up. I'll give you something to drink. Jesus is not just doing that because that would be shallow, wouldn't it? Because if everybody just heard that part of the message, that's pretty much what we all would want, right? Like, give me, give me life, Jesus. Give me the uh, living water. But what he says to her now is there is a counting of the cost. Are you willing to repent of your sin and be honest with who you are? So though many of these people, they might uh, be going to heaven, the gospel that they're giving people leads to hell. Can I hear an amen to that? So I love here that this woman is now confronted. It's not just, do I want life? Do I want the living water? The question is, do I want the water by means of repenting for the things that I have done against the living water? In other words, her cistern has been broken, and she has not been able to hold the water because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God is saying, before I give you the water, I want you to be born again and become a new well, a well of eternal life. And then she says, sir, the woman says, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. Now she gets all religious. You know, oh man, I can tell you, you're a preacher, ain't you? You know, after he just read her mail. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. And then he begins to teach her about true spiritual worship. Somebody say grace and truth. Amen. Go with me now to the next chapter, John chapter 5. 
John chapter 5, we hear about the sheep gate and somebody that's sick there, they would lie, they're sick around these colonnades at this pool. Chapter 5 pretty much summarizes what's happening there. Jesus walks up to someone that's lying there and he asked him, do you want to get well? How many know Jesus always likes to ask you questions that put you on the spot? Like, of course I want to get well. But see, once again, there's grace and there's going to be truth. But somebody say, this is grace. It's intermingled with truth, just like how truth is always intermingled with grace. So he asked him, do you want to get well? The invalid replied, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. That was because an angel would do something special there. Verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. Somebody say amen. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you for helping me preach. There we got grace. We don't have him being called out for the wives that he might have had, you know, or the issues he might have had. We just see Jesus healing this man. Somebody say, that's my Jesus. Jesus just walking by. He sees this dude struggling. He's like, man, do you want to get well? You know, because sometimes you got to ask people that. You know, they're asking for money on the streets. You know, do you really want help? You know, Jesus is checking his motive. And the guy says, man, I really wish I could, but nobody puts me down there. And I think that was a just a mustard seed. Somebody say a mustard seed. That's all Jesus needed to hear. Okay, I got you. Get up and walk. And there it is. End of the party. Take up your mat and walk. But hold on. There now becomes a problem because it was the Sabbath day, and now this man's carrying his mat, which was considered by the Jews to be work, and so now they confront this man doing work on the Sabbath, not caring that a cripple's been healed. They are definitely focusing on the wrong thing, and they start to talk to him and challenge him, and this is basically what he says, is the one who made me well is the one who told me to pick up my mat and walk. I think I'm listening to him, not you guys. It kind of reminds me, you know, like, what are you going to do, make me crippled again? You know, it reminds me of what happened with Lazarus. They raised, Jesus raised him from the dead. Jews get so mad they want to kill him again, you know, and that's what religion will do to you. It will make a fool out of you, okay? But now Jesus finds him because Jesus wants to comfort him because he saw that probably from a distance all of this happening. So then Jesus found him later, verse 14, in the temple and said to him, come on over here, man. Somebody say truth is coming. I love my Jesus. Somebody say, truth is coming. He's like, look, man, I know know you just got messed with by the Jews, and you might be thinking about turning back on some of the stuff that you know about me or going to learn about me, but let me just tell you this right here. I didn't just heal you so you could be healed. Listen, I healed you so I could change your life. See, you are well again. You better stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. (laughs) I love Jesus. Come on, isn't that our Jesus? Somebody say, that's my Jesus. I love it, man. The guy's healed. He's getting messed with by the Jews over here. Man, he's just happy to be walking again. He's, but, he, you know, he's got all this turmoil going in, uh, going on in his mind probably. You know, whose side am I on? What am I going to do with my life now? I don't want to be messed by these guys, but I'm happy I'm healed. And Jesus like, you better stop sinning. You think being crippled was bad. Wait till you see what hell is like. That's my Jesus. That is Jesus, and I don't know why we are ashamed of this Jesus. I love that he came full of grace and truth. You can go to hell being healed. You can go to hell after you've been water baptized if you haven't been saved. Are you listening? You take a pig, put it in water, and say a few words over it, it's still a pig. Unless you're boiling it and making it into lechon or something, it, it gets transformed into something good like pastor tacos or something. 
or whatever tacos are. Are pastor tacos made out of pork? Okay, yeah, yeah. But you don't change the nature of something just by putting it in water, saying some words. He's warning this man and saying to him, if you think the healing was what I'm just about, I'm not just about the healing. The healing is to show you what I'm really about because I'm making people whole on the inside. I'm changing lives. And so how many know a crippled person can sin? You know, how many know somebody in the wheelchair can sin? This man might have been living a life of sin. We know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So whatever he was doing, whatever his lifestyle was about, Jesus was being very clear to him, stop sinning. When do I stop? Right now. Stop sinning. But I can't. Yeah, you can. Just like you started is how you stop. Are you listening? Just like there was a day you never did it, there's going to be a day again you never do it. Are you all listening to me? You didn't grow up with a vape in your mouth. You didn't grow up looking at, uh, you know, grow up as a little child with pornography on your little thing or whatever your little book your parents gave you. There was a day you didn't look at it, and then there was a day you looked at it, and by the power of Jesus Christ, you'll never look at it again. Stop sinning in Jesus' name. How many have stopped sinning? How many have seen, you might not be sinless, but you sin less in Jesus' name, and you convicted when you do? Praise God. I'm glad he's holding that. I'm glad he told that man that. Go to John chapter 5, verse 36, same chapter. Now he has to deal with the Jews because they're all upset with him for healing on the Sabbath. He has to show that his authority is greater than Moses, that Moses was just the tutor, as we'll learn in the Galatians series in second service, that he's the actual lawgiver, and he gave the law for a purpose. And now it's not time to, to listen to the tutor. Now it's time to listen to the actual teacher, the professor's back. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to to finish the very works that I'm doing. Somebody say he's going to say it's finished. See, he's going to finish it and say it's finished in just a little bit. The testimony that the Father has sent me. And the Father has the Father who sent me himself testify concerning me. You have never heard his voice. Now look at what he says to these guys. You have never heard his voice. You have never seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Somebody say it's tight, but it's right. See, they, they determined how that tone was going to be. If they truly had questions and came at Jesus humble, then he would have dialogued with him, uh, with them, like he dialogued with Nicodemus. See, that situation with Nicodemus was full of grace and truth. But we're getting to the point here in the story where these guys are just starting to get the truth nonstop like water out of a fire hose. But I believe it's still mixed with grace because we're going to see Jesus even weep for them towards the end of his life. Let's go now to John chapter 6, verse 60. He's dealt with these Jews uh, for the, you know, for these different issues. It's building up. In John chapter 60, he then throws them off by saying, not only do you have to believe in me, but you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, at this point, they all get crazy, and they think that he's talking about becoming cannibals, as I mentioned before. Look at it in verse 60. On hearing it, many now, even his disciples, not just the Jewish people that he was trying to, to show them the depth of his teachings, but now the disciples who truly, it seems like, want to be there, they say, this is a hard teaching who can accept it. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? 
Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of what? Spirit and what? Life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Now, Jesus had known from the beginning of them which did not believe who would betray him. And he says, this is why I've told you no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Now, are you guys ready to read John chapter 6, verse 66? John chapter 6, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Somebody say, that's the truth. Now, I love this. It's still coming. Jesus is not even close to done yet. Jesus says, looking right at his disciples, you do not want to leave, do you? Looking at the 12. And then somebody say, grace. See, that one went from truth to grace. Some of the ones we've seen have gone from grace to truth. Now, here's the grace. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus says, have I not chosen you the 12, yet one of you is a devil. <laughs> it goes truth, grace, truth. A little bit of sandwich there, right? Truth, grace, truth, if you're kind of keeping track as categories. But once again, do I see them as opposites? No, I see them as being intermingled. Here you can see Peter basically saying back to him, very similar to the other statements we've seen in the Bible with Elijah to Elijah and to others like, man, I'm believing God is with you. I believe you're not just someone who speaks the word of God, but you're even greater than that. You're the holy one of God. And at that moment, you could just uh, sense in this part of the story, Jesus' heart goes soft towards Peter. And he's like, that's right, I've chosen you guys. But sadly, one of you is a devil. And that's why we believe Satan can afflict Judas is because he's either a backslider by this point or he was never a, a Christian. He was always a false convert. Either or, that's why he is called a devil from this point on. And then Satan will possess him. Now go with me to John chapter 7. Go to John chapter 7. Can I get a grace and truth one more time? Grace and truth, thank you. Now, Jesus had siblings. How many know it's hard to have grace with your siblings? <laughs> Any parents here understand that? My children have a hard time with grace with each other. They'll talk to me all sweet. They'll be all sweet to me, especially they want some candy and ice cream and different things. But with each other, dear God, if one even looks at each, the one the wrong way, I hear them yelling and hollering. I went in the living room the other day because I heard my Zoe hollering, stop kicking me, stop kicking me. So I go over there and Titus, the little guy, is kicking her, you know. And I feel so bad because he's only like two years old, you know. But it was bothering her, you know. But I'm thinking to myself, you could just walk away from him, you know. But boy, that sure made her upset. But how many know we got to have grace and truth with our siblings? Amen. Jesus is hanging out with his siblings. His brothers are there. He's hanging out with them. And they basically say to him, they go, hey, Jesus, why don't you go and show yourself at a big festival? Why don't you just prove this to everybody who you are? And in verse 5, it says his brother said this because they did not believe in him. Now, look at what Jesus says here, verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. Now, some single people, you need to hear this right now. Right now, y'all need to hear this because for me, I had to wait for my time. Like some, unlike some of you, you just waiting for it. You just going to go with anybody. Single, you'll just take anybody to mingle. 
And I want to tell you, I had to wait 10 years for my time. But some of you are like, well, I'll just take the first one that comes. And then you wonder why you're afflicted the way you are. Are you listening? So for some of you, anyone will do, any time will do, but you better learn to wait. And I'm not saying it was easy for me, but I waited in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. Now watch this. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. You go up there. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. Do you notice how there's both grace and truth in there? He's explaining this to them because he wants them to understand why it's so easy for them to see things the way, uh, the way they do. It's because they're of the world. That's why the world loves them. And the Bible talks about this in other places. And even as Christians in this culture, we understand why is it certain uh, you know, news organizations or uh, certain outlets on um, Facebook and YouTube don't mess with certain churches. You know, you hardly ever see like something negative said about T.D. Jakes or, you know, Joel Osteen from those news networks or Rick Warren and all them, because what they want to do is put them in their pocket and say, whenever we need a Christian voice, we're just going to call on T.D. Jakes, we're going to call on Rick Warren, and they'll just come and they'll play nice with us. But anybody who speaks against their agenda, they're going to call out, make look like a cult, threaten to burn down their building. Are you listening? Why do they do that? Because the world loves its own. See, Jesus was being gracious to them, and how do I know it was even intermingled with grace? Is because two of those brothers, James and Jude, wrote two books of your Bible. They get saved after the resurrection. They had to learn the hard way, though, through some rebukes and tough love. Somebody say tough love. And then last but not least, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. One more time, can you say grace and truth? Grace and truth. It's not Jesus living up to his reputation. As he shows you that he's keeping his word. He is full of grace and truth. Now, here's where I'm ashamed of our modern translations, and I have to be honest, we'll discuss this later, maybe a little bit more in depth, hopefully. But as you'll see, it's italicized. And the reason that is, as your NIV might have like mine, and I read the NIV because it's easier for me as a preacher to read, but above the italics, see if the italics uh, above verse 1 of uh, verse 53 scroll up. Okay, they don't have it there. Oh, yeah, they do. Keep going. Go up a little bit. Yeah. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this. A few manuscripts include these verses, holy or in part. And so this is where we as uh, scholars, Bible students, we take serious what is in our manuscripts. And sometimes people say somebody has changed the Bible. The Bible is the Bible whether we change it or not. That's a fact, first of all. Whether or not I would ever change this, God's word would still remain. In other words, if someone wrote an autobiography and you changed it, the autobiography would still be true. Now, the question is, could we ever know what has been changed? And thankfully, we can by looking at our manuscripts. We can see that this has always been with us. The problem that some modern scholars have is that it's been in different places. And that was because over different times, people thought it belonged in different places, but it's in the majority of our text, and that means we don't just follow the places where it's not. We follow where it is, and we ask the question, why was it there? And so now you would have to ask your question, if you think this never belonged there and somebody changed it, why would somebody add this story here? Does this story teach any false doctrines? How many know the story of the woman caught in adultery? Does this story teach any false doctrines? So does, even if someone was to say, well, it was 
added in, it didn't change. Like, let me give you the example here. If this was added in and quote unquote changed the Bible, does adding in this section of scripture from John 7:53 to 8:11 change John 50, John 7:52? Does it change John 7, 51? Does it change all the way back to John chapter 1, verse 1? No, just adding something in didn't change anything from John 1, 1 all the way to John 7, 52. And likewise, if this was added in all the way to 8, 11, does it change anything of 8, 12? Does it change anything of 8, 13? Keep up with me, folks. Come on. 8, 14. How about 8, 15? 8, 16? Of course not. All the way to the end. So has the auto or the biography of Jesus been changed in any way here? No. It still remains the same. But what has happened is the discussion of was it added in or was it original? And it has been original but in different places is what I believe. But it predominantly is in John, which we call the majority text, in places like the King James and others. Now, If this story has been added in, just to give you a little bit of Bible college here, and we know it doesn't change anything prior, doesn't change anything after, what does this change about Jesus and our understanding by having the story itself? In other words, does the story itself now change anything about the way we think about Jesus? No, as a matter of fact, it seems to be in line with the Jesus we've heard all the way up until this point. Those of you already know the story. Are you guys with me? Don't take my word for it. We're going to read it. But those of you already know it, it's the same Jesus. So here's what I think. I think because there are good scholars on both sides, see that because it has switched places in our Gospels, because it hasn't been consistently in some of the earlier manuscripts in a certain place, they trying to play the safe side have said, well, we are not sure. Let us just put it in italics and say this statement here. But you see, that doesn't bother me that it's been in different places, in different manuscripts, like in the Gospel of Luke, so forth. It doesn't bother me that in some early manuscripts, it doesn't have it, because the majority do, and it doesn't change anything about the way we know Jesus. It gives us the insight of the Jesus we already know. And then here is what I put as the icing on the top. Everybody say, icing on the top. The church fathers mentioned this story as they mentioned the other stories of Jesus, so it was known to them. It is not something foreign that was put into the Bible. Now, let me just say this to those who want to study more about the manuscripts. You can study Daniel Wallace. You can study James Snap. You can study others that I'm mentioning to you now or contact us and we'll get you information. But here's the beautiful thing about this story and the reason why I trust that God has been faithful to preserve it because of the Latin Vulgate and because of the King James and the most popular versions we have had in Christianity have always included this story. Why would God allow in his sovereignty, just take the King James, for example, for us to have a story that was not biblical from 1611 all the way till now? I don't think that God would have allowed that to continue when there were false gospels, actually things that were not true that were exposed very early on. I think God, by his sovereignty, has allowed us to have the correct Bible. Now, how can we 
uh, study this and come to that conclusion that that's just not us just uh, wishful thinking is that we're still finding manuscripts today and as the manuscripts get found it's not like they could have been tampered by the Roman Catholic Church or some conspiracy we're finding them like in tombs like nobody knew where they were at because the church was meeting there or at different times the pagans would mock us and tear out our scriptures and our scrolls and use them to mummify their own dead to defile our scriptures and we're peeling off mummy uh, uh, you know these parts of the mummy, of the papyrus of the mummy, we're finding scriptures. Everybody go, ah. And what I believe we'll find and continue to find is the support of this passage. Are you ready to read it and believe it? That's up to you now, but we're not going to ignore that part there. I just wanted you to hear it. Now, grace and truth. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. What is the first question that, all, that comes to all of our minds when we hear this? Where is the man? Was she committing adultery all by herself? <laughs> Come on, somebody. That's a whole nother sin, but you don't call it adultery. Was she committing adultery by herself? No, but here they bring the woman. They bring the woman, and they made her stand before the group and then said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Well, if you caught her in the act of adultery, who would you catch her with? All right? Because in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. Now, do me a favor. Just highlight right over the T, right over here where it says command to stone such women. Uh, oh, I guess click on it. Let's see if it will give it to us. Leviticus 20, verse 10. Now just highlight on it right here. Put it right here. No, pull it up for us. Okay. Now it's going to spin the ball. See, there it is. Leviticus, Leviticus 20, 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both. How many are? What does it say right here? Both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Okay, now going back to the passage, please. John chapter 8, so they bring the woman, these hypocrites, only, and they're trying to put Jesus on the spot, looking there at verse 4, and Jesus said, uh, or rather, um, look at verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such women and the man, right? What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But when Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Everybody go, grace. Amen. Everybody gets so happy when they read this. People will tell you all the time, Jesus said, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. You Christians out here throwing your stones at us. I'm just like the poor old woman caught in adultery. Jesus loves me, but keep on reading. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until there was only Jesus left with the woman standing there. Now, this is what some preachers have said. We don't know if it's true or not, but what he was writing down was their sin starting with the oldest to the youngest. And so the oldest started going, oh, yeah, you got me, Jesus, because if he could call out the woman, he could call them out, right? So he's like Bob, and then he writes next to that name Brenda and Paula, and, you know, unless our name and off all of his adultery, and then he went to the you know, oldest to youngest. That's what they think. I don't know. Nobody knows, but preachers have preached it good before. 
And so now they all leave from the older ones to the first until Jesus was left with the woman standing there. He straightened her up. This is redemption. Amen. Somebody say grace. Amen. This is redemption. This is love and forgiveness. And he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, sir, she said. And then he responded back to her, neither do I condemn you. And that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story, right? That's it. Neither do I condemn you. Go on now, girl. Go do your thing. You know, in, in this world, this adulteress, she could have been like in uh, the book of Proverbs, a prostituting adulteress. We don't know. She could have been a messy adulteress like we heard with the woman at the well having many husbands and having one that wasn't her husband. So, you know, whatever was going on in her life, Jesus, full of grace, forgives her, does, doesn't let anybody stone her. He says, I don't condemn you, and then he just says, God bless you, and go on your way. Isn't that what it says? That's how it ends, right? No, Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin, or the old time version, go and sin no more. See, that's my Jesus. Somebody say, that's my Jesus. Amen. Vinny, would you come, please? Grace and truth. We see all the way through the scriptures that Jesus is teaching us grace and truth. And I think so often that we become unbalanced and we become unchristlike when we don't have both. You see, I mentioned some of those teachers before, and it's real easy for some of us to go, oh, okay, well, yeah, I can see the, you know, the issue with some of these preachers that don't mention the go and sin no more part. All they do is talk about the forgiveness part. But how many have been around some preachers that have gone to the other side that all they talk about is the go and sin part, and it feels like you're under a lot of condemnation? You see, just the other, the other side is just as guilty if they do not bring up the salvation that comes with joy and peace. There are some people who say, I just want the Jesus of the wedding. I just want the Jesus that hangs out. You know, I want the Jesus that makes the wine, that allows us to have a good time. But I don't want the Jesus of the temple that cleanses it, that changes it. And then we're having an unbalanced life, are we not? It's hard to have balance. As a matter of fact, the sign of maturity, if I were to be honest with you as a pastor, every person here, and thank you for coming today, if I was to be honest with you and say as a pastor, 20 years walking this out with you and serving you, um, I would say the hardest thing for me has been the balance, the interminglement of grace and truth. That it's easy in moods and mood swings to go from one direction to the other. As I was mentioning before with the children, sometimes I, feel, I find myself with my children only laying down truth, laying down truth. And then sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I just go all to grace. Take your pad, do your video game, go outside, leave me alone. Grace, here's freedom, you know. Sometimes you feel like that. It's hard, isn't it, as a parent to, in grace, give truth and to have truth with grace. It's hard. Those of you uh, preaching and reaching your friends right now and you see them doing things, uh, maybe popular sins that are happening right now. Uh, sadly, young adults would probably know about this. Travis Scott, a famous rapper that's demonically influenced, had a concert that was advertising death and demonization and I think upwards of eight people just died over the weekend at this concert. People 
that were even from Chicago, young adults. And we see this, and it's so easy for us to look at that rapper and go, Satan, you devil, to rebuke them, to only expose them, to show them how wicked they are in our comments and our posts. And trust me, it does need to be exposed. But then we forget, if it wasn't for God's grace, there we go as well. Have you ever gone to a demonic concert? Were you ever at one before you were a Christian? Did you ever do things that could have gotten you killed and facing judgment? I think to myself right now, it's only by the grace of God that I'm here. I could have died at multiple times in my life. And I think sometimes we do this even in our politics. We, you know, we draw our lines and we say, you know, I'm this and they're that. And I literally sometimes hear us even praying in this church. We pray, some of us, like the Pharisee prayed. I thank God that I'm not like this one. I thank God that I'm not like this one. And sometimes I hear that and I know that they don't mean it in that way. But we have to encourage our brothers and sisters to not pray this way. If we're saying, I thank God for not being a part of something, it needs to be because of God's grace that took you out of that. I thank God God opened my eyes. I thank God changed me. Do you see the difference in that? Is you're saying, I thank God did something in me. It's not like I was better than this one right here. It's not like I was better than them in any way. And we can do that so easily. And yet, Jesus the one who was always perfectly full of grace and truth knew when and where to bring out each message with each component and to allow the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. And so as we get ready to close today, I just want to ask for the grace and the space and the pace to be given to a church to walk out the truth that the Lord has given us. I'm going to say those three things again, that grace will give us a pace to walk at. And if someone's walking at a different pace in that grace of the truth of the Scriptures, you'll be patient with them. And that as they are walking in that pace, at their, at their pace in that journey, you will give them space not to deny truth. Did Jesus deny truth to this woman that adultery will cast her into hell? Did he deny truth to the man that was in sin after he got healed that it wouldn't be worse than hell? No. He told them the truth. It's worse if you keep sinning. Go now and leave your sin. He told his brothers, he said, man, the world loves you because you're wicked just like them. But is that all he told them? Is that how he left them? No. He gave them always that grace and space and that pace to experience the truth. How many of you can look back over the Christian life that you've already had with the Lord in the past and see if it wasn't for his grace to give you space and a pace? You wouldn't be where you are today. You wouldn't be in the truth like you are today. And I know as a bold preacher that I have lived, I'm just being honest with you, I have lived in the whipping of the temple. I have lived in the telling the woman, go and sin no more. I have lived there. But I didn't know for years the Jesus at the wedding. 
in Bible college when my friend got married at the wedding, in his wedding ceremony, and they had a ceremony there. And after they did their, um, you know, because it was at the, the banquet hall, after they did their vows and all of that, they began to do the dance. You know, the mother and son dance and the father and daughter dance. And they put on a secular song at the, at the wedding. I walked out because they were dancing to a secular song and calling themselves Christians. Now, would I have gone to hell? I wouldn't have gone to hell. Jesus knew my heart and what I was trying to understand about truth and being separate from the world. I wouldn't have gone to hell, but I was not experiencing the fullness of the gospel. That's why I say when we look at the others that are on the other side, they go right to the bochata, the backing it up like it's hot, the gasolina. They're going at the wedding. I'm like, okay, but do they confess Christ? Have they not sinned in adultery whatever? So I'm like, if they can have it so loose over here, why are we so quick to say those people for sure go to hell, but the legalistic one, no, they get, they get it better. No, both are wrong for the same reasons. They don't understand the other side or the intermingling of the attributes of Christ. And so in this church, I don't want us to say, well, we look down on these because they're so liberal in these ways. But those over here that feel like they're so bound up in everything, that we're going to say like, well, no, they're different. No, that can, that can lead to bondage in a real way more than just in a mental way. That can lead to some oppression in their life. Because I know for me, listen to me, the Bible says in Galatians and in Hebrews that when you, go, when you start going towards that law, it will keep pulling you in, pulling you in, legalism and legalism until you defy grace. You fall from grace. That's a scripture, my friends. And you can fall from grace by sinning without repentance, living with a hard heart towards God and his moral code. So I'm asking for a congregation as we get ready to close out here today that really wants to grow in this and have conversations about this in their life groups and in their discipleship and that we as leaders and that we as people who have been around for a while will let people begin to work their, out their salvation with fear and trembling lest we fall into either one of these ditches. This is what I'll say one last time in closing. My life especially in the last five to seven years, has been the greatest journey with Jesus I have ever had. Why? Because I have begun to understand that grace and truth. I've understood it in ways I've never seen it before. And that's why when I hear somebody, honestly, I hear somebody says, man, I can't listen to secular music. I can't uh, celebrate this or I can't drink this. Joe, that thing about wine makes me feel very uncomfortable. I, I don't want anything to do with that. My family was an alcoholic. You know, my parents were alcoholics. When, when I hear something like that, in my heart now, this is how you know you're right, is you don't have to defend your part. You can just celebrate them. Now I can look at them and go, man, praise God. That's awesome that you avoid those things and that God has you do these things. That's so amazing. You know what I used to try to do before was force my understanding onto them. Almost like, man, you better drink or you're not free in Christ. You better drink because this stuff is bondage. That's the wrong understanding. Who cares what your mommy and daddy did? You've been free from a generational curse. Who the, you know, and I'll go all in that. But now, you see, I don't need to defend myself to their story. I can feel comfortable I can feel comfortable in hearing somebody's grace and space at that pace that they're understanding truth. I can go, cool, man, you still only, you only read the King James? Man, that's awesome. 
That's awesome. I'm sorry I don't read it more here for you, but trust me, I respect the King James. Oh, you don't celebrate this, man? Oh, that's great. What are you going to do that day? Okay, that's what you're going to do. Oh, yeah, we only homeschool our kids. We don't like public school. Okay, that's great. Well, I'm not going to take the vaccine. Okay, that's great, man. That's awesome. I pray, let it be done according to your faith. Let it be done according to your faith. These are not black and white issues. These are not heaven or hell issues. This is, this is for you to understand because at that wedding, there could have been a Nazarite there. Nazarites were Jews who took vows not to drink. John the Baptist might have been at that wedding. Are you guys listening? John the Baptist might have said, oh, man, you all still partying? I'm going to go back out here to the river, eat some more locusts and honey. I got my sackcloth on. I don't even got wedding clothes. I'm going to go back out here. And that's great. Okay, man, that's great. But some of us, some of us want to do the electric slide with Jesus. Seriously, I, I, as I started to understand this grace and space and pace and everything, I was weird at weddings because there was a part of me like, I feel very uncomfortable with you dancing to the electric slide right now. But I'm watching my wife and others, and they're having fun. So I said, I, I know my wife's not in sin. I know they're not in sin. So there was times that I just began to kind of dip my feet in. I just did my feet, and God is my witness. About seven years ago, they were playing some like 80s music, like do the Humpty Hump, and I was just like, okay, I'll dance. I'll just have some fun. I was dancing, definitely like a white boy, definitely. No doubt was I dancing wrong. And then literally, God as my witness, the father of the bride, or the father of the groom, the groom's father came over to me, I don't know if I'm telling you the truth. God is my witness. This was the first time I really danced at a wedding. Father of the groom pulled me over. I don't know if a pastor dancing like that is the right thing to do. Man, giving me that taste of legalism is like giving a crack at a crack again. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, man, you, you don't even know what you're trying to tempt me with right here. It took me years to even be at a wedding. It took me years to even let my wife and kids or whatever dance at a wedding. Now I finally get on the dance floor. And now you and your religious self is going to tell me I'm embarrassing myself. And as God is a witness, I haven't danced on the dance floor since then because of that. And I know I'm free, but it just bothers me. It just makes me upset. And the Bible says, don't let your good be evil spoken of. I have other scriptures in my mind. I'm like, well, if that's the way it's going to be, we're just going to do our own thing. And every now and then, Vinny comes over with his mother-in-law and different people at different house parties. I just do a little dance with them. Sometimes they'll get me to move my hips a little bit. But yeah, it messes with me. That one time that pastor's just going to dance with Jesus at the wedding, not sinning, not in adultery, not lusting after women, dancing with Hosolito. This brother loves to dance. He'll get you free. And some of y'all, like Filipinos, love karaoke. You know what I'm saying? God, do you karaoke to these different songs, you know? All of these different traditions and different cultures. My wife will tell you we were the first ones to leave our wedding reception because I didn't want to dance. People at the wedding were like, where are, where are you going? I'm like, I'm done. They said, there's no dancing. No, I let my Greek family do that one dance. And like I said, it took me years to dance. When I did, I came under that condemnation. And so I want to ask us to be a church that has grace and space. Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus. That's what he is. Let's stand up. Come on, bless his name. Altar Workers Band. I know I went a little long. Can we close out today in prayer? I'm not saying do whatever you feel like doing. Hope, don't hear me say that today, saints. I'm saying do according to the word of God what is grace and truth. 
Father, I ask you to bless us and teach us your ways. If you're not saved, I pray today you get saved. You need Christ to go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. Otherwise, worse things will come on you. As we get ready to dismiss, I want you to ask Christ into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. That's the truth, and he'll give you grace right now. If you're already saved, but today there's issues in your life, and you're swinging that pendulum one way or the other, maybe you're too hard, maybe you're not full of grace, maybe you've been unkind to people, ask God to fill you with that grace. Or maybe you've been on the other side, you've just been too loosey-goosey about everything, and God wants to give you a foundation today of truth. A few moments before we dismiss, can you pray right now? God, check my heart. I want to be full of grace and truth. A few moments, if you're not saved, talk to Jesus. If you need to come up for prayer, you can for anything in just a few moments, or even now if you would like. These altars are open. But can we check our hearts? Grace and space. Lord, give us the truth and help us to live it out today, right now in Jesus' name. I rebuke every lying spirit, every devil from hell. No one here should be bound in the name of Jesus by any spirit. Every person here should be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you have anything holding you back from serving God, come up, let us pray for you in just a few moments or even now. But right where you're at, make sure grace and truth have filled you, that you're free, that you can grow, that you can be kind to others and challenge others. In just a few moments, we'll dismiss in just a few moments, we'll dismiss. But I sense God's moving here right now. Thank you for your patience, second service. God, we pray you do it. Make us so full of grace and truth, O oh Lord, that we look just like your son, Jesus. Jesus, we want to be like you, full of grace, full of truth. Jesus. We want to be like you, full of grace, full of truth. Just a few moments right now, talk to the Lord. If you're with your family or somebody that you know that this is important to, you can begin to pray with them. Parents, pray together. Let us be full of grace and truth as moms and dads. Children, pray with your parents. I want to be full of grace and truth with you, mom and dad. I want to be honest. I want to be kind. I want to be generous. Lord, transform us from the inside out. You know how to do it. You know how to do it, God. Do it in this generation. Help us to know, God, how to live this out with our family, with our friends, with those that we are praying for to see healed and delivered. Wrap us in grace and truth, fullness, 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 fullness. Come on, I speak that over this congregation as I speak it over my life. Fullness today, not lacking anything. Fullness of grace, fullness of truth. Thank you, Father. This may not be natural to you, but you're born again. You have a new nature. This is the new nature, full of grace and truth. Thank you, Lord, for filling these altars, touching these lives. Help us to continue to grow and to be who you called us to be. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Can you bless the Lord if you believe in grace and truth today? God bless you. Thank you for coming. We are going to dismiss you out the side so those in the...